0: Don't you love it when you're watching a movie and someone sits down right in the middle of that movie and they want to know everything that's going on? (laughs) Who's that? What just happened? Um, Where'd she come from? Why are those two fighting? Uh, And you have to explain everything. If it's a Hallmark Christmas movie or something like that, that's okay. It just takes about five seconds to explain the plot because it's just this boilerplate they use and just change the names. Um, But if it's a better movie, if it has a a more complex story, it's hard to bring them up to speed quickly. Um, Well, if you're new to the church in the last two months, you're walking into the middle of a movie this morning, as it were. Everyone else here, except you, knows exactly where we're at and what's going on. And they are just hanging there on the edge of their seat, just waiting for the next sermon to continue the story yeah right i'm I'm not that naive, and so don't think that you're alone if if in if you feel a little bit like you're walking in the middle of a movie this morning if you're new here um, as you sit down with your bucket of popcorn metaphorically uh, I hope <laughs> uh, we don't want food in here um This morning, in the middle of this story, this is the scene that is on the screen, as it were, as we look in the scriptures. This is the scene in front of you. This is what you're trying to figure out. The paramedics are frantically working on the mangled body of a man who just fell from an upper story room. That's the scene. And so, we're left asking, what in the world just happened? Who is this guy? And... How did he get here in this condition? So just hit the pause button here. And I want to try to catch us up uh, so we don't feel lost this morning. And so we feel connected to where we've been. We're starting the book of Second Kings this morning. We've, we, and, and what you need to know is that the book of Second Kings was not always Second Kings. Originally, there was one book of Kings. And it was one book covering roughly 400 years of Israel's history from 970 to 586 B.C. And eventually it was just such a large book that it was divided into two. When, actually when the Greeks translated the Old Testament scriptures, the Septuagint is when it was first divided. And so even though we're starting 2 Kings this morning, we're really jumping right into the middle of the story of Kings. This 400 year uh, story, true story. The, the the book of kings first and second kings in one word would be this it's it's about decline it's about the decline of god's people israel and and so we've been away for a couple of months so let me just kind of get a a, a run up to our passage in second kings 1 this morning first kings began with the death of israel's second and greatest king david that's how the book begins. It's sort of fitting that it begins with the death of the nation's leading figure and it ends with them going into exile in Babylon. But after David's death, the first 11 chapters of 1 Kings, they, they focus on the splendor of David's son, Solomon's kingdom. And, and so he starts so well and everything looks promising. He receives wisdom from God. He builds a, a temple, this glorious temple for God and for his worship. And the king and the people give their obedience to God. And everything looks so promising. But it's not how you start a race It's important. It's how you finish a race. That's what really matters. And he finished terribly. Because of his love for foreign women, pagan women, he opened up the spigot that allowed idolatry to just flow freely into the nation. There there were many pagan cultures and religions that crept into Israel, and they included that of the Moabites, and I'm just highlighting them because it's important to what we'll see in verse one just a moment, to get the context and why there's a bloodied body in the floor of this palace. He married a Moabite woman, and he married other foreign women. And 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 First Kings eleven two says that he clung to them in love. But verse four, they turned away his heart after other gods, and his heart was not wholly true to the Lord his God, and was the as was the heart of David his father. So he goes so because of his passion for these foreign women, again many wives and and pagan wives. Idolatry comes in, and he goes so far as to begin to build places of worship for these foreign wives. He builds a high place for Chemosh, the God, the abomination of Moab, along with other places of worship. Kamosh was the was the idol of the Bo, of the Moabites making, and we'll come back to that in just a moment. But but this unfaithfulness to the Lord, this utter disregard for what God had said and and what covenant faithfulness looked like for Israel, it, it led to this nationwide spiritual decline that ultimately culminated in the division of the kingdom. And so the kingdom is divided. You have two kings now, uh, two nations, two places of worship. You have Israel to the north with ten tribes. You have Judah to the south with two tribes. That's the Davidic line. And after the kingdom is divided we see all of the kings of the north turn out to just be miserable failures. There's not one of them who is righteous in the eyes of the Lord. They all are wicked in just one after another. And Judah is more of a mixed bag. There are a few bright spots along the way, but many are are also very wicked. And so from 1 Kings chapter 12... All the way to 2 Kings chapter 17, we have this description of the reigns of these kings of Israel and Judah. And so we're right in the middle of that section, and obviously in there we have the prophetic ministry of Elijah, and as we'll see, Elisha next week. And then the book of 2 Kings ends with, in the last eight chapters, are focused just on the the very last days of of Judah before they go into exile in Babylon. So that's kind of the, the broad the broad picture. But 2 Kings begins. Right where 1 Kings left off. With wicked king Ahab dead. That's, that's where we see. He's gone, he's gone on to get exactly what he deserved. And that's the fierce wrath of God. After his death. And he leaves the nation of Israel. In this death spiral. I mean it is. The ground is getting closer fast. For Israel. But but you think. Maybe with wicked Ahab's death. Maybe things will turn around. Right? Wrong. It's it's not the case at all. Ahab's son Ahaziah. Is just as much of a walking train wreck. Train wreck as his father was. And so Matt read the description at the end of 1 Kings. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord. He walked in the way of his father. And in the way of his mother Jezebel. He served Baal and he worshipped him and provoked the Lord to anger in every way that his father had done. So we pick up the story in Second Kings and it begins with this little historical note. Look in Second Kings chapter 1 verse 1. After the death of Ahab, Moab rebelled against Israel. Let me just explain what's going on. It, again, we're still trying to get back to that opening scene in verse 2. The, the relationship between Israel and Moab had always been an uneasy one. Uh, they, they, interestingly, they have common ancestors. Moab was the son of Lot's eldest daughter, um, and it was through that incestuous relationship with their own father. And so, so they have they have common ancestors. They have a common language. They have, at, at, at one point, they had common customs, but they have a different god. That's that's the important thing. So, so at times in Israel's history, they were allies. At times, they were fierce enemies. And, and so, so we, we have to reckon, I mean, David was one-eighth Moabite. His great-grandmother was Ruth, that Moabite proselyte to Judaism. She married a Jewish man, Boaz. And so the Davidic line from which Christ came and included this wife, this Moabite wife, but we see in Israel's history when David was pursuing, or was David was being pursued by Saul, the Moabites gave David refuge. They protected him and protected his life. But when David became king, then they didn't look so favorably upon him. At first, he was a, he was an ally because he was a rival to Saul's throne. But when he became king, then he became a rival of theirs. And so during David's reign, there was a war between Israel and Moab, but David conquered them, subdued them. By the end of, uh, the end of Solomon's reign, though, the Moabites aren't subdued any longer. They're accommodated, remember, through his marriages to, his Moab, to this Moabite woman, and, and the religion and the culture of Moab is flowing into Israel. And then after the kingdom is divided, the Moabites They they revolted against Israel a couple of times, and this is where we're seeing, we're getting closer here. And it was the northern tribes, it was Israel that they went after. They didn't mess with Judah, they went after Israel it seems. And so the first revolt happened um, when Ahab's father, so Ahaziah's father is Ahab, Ahab's father was Omri. And so they revolted against Omri, that revolt failed, he he controlled it, he squashed it and it's that that's not recorded in scripture but it's interestingly it's found on an ancient stone that was inscribed by king mesha who was the moabite king who led the second revolt which is the revolt that's mentioned here in verse 1 of second kings you with me hang with me for just a little longer let me just pause here that stone that that inscription was on is is the moabite stone you may have heard of this this is from 800 bc this i mean it was written inscribed during this time it, it 's an incredible archaeological discovery, and it connects a lot of dots, but most notably it, it, it gives the, it shows the biblical, the validity of this biblical account, one that was questioned before this stone was discovered. It was discovered by a German missionary in in modern day Jordan in the eighteen hundreds and and the story of how it was discovered and acquired and preserved i I just say, go read it. It's just fascinating. Google it and you can... And it's very, very interesting. And I just have to not go there right now because as much as I want to tell. But it, it gives an account. It gives the account of both of these revolts of Moab against Israel. And it gives all of the credit for the the victory, the, the second revolt success to the Moabite god, Kamash. And so... But again, what it does is it affirms the truthfulness of the biblical narrative, as archaeology always does. As I love that Christians, we do not have to be afraid of archaeology. We're the ones that are out there doing most of the work because everything we find it just confirms what we know to be true in Scripture. And so, so but this Moabite stone, you can go and see it. It's in it's in the Louvre in Paris. Uh, we were a, we we were visiting the Flintoffs when they were in language school and. In France, five or so years ago, and we went to the Louvre with them, and we saw the Moabite Stone. There's, you know, there's thousands of people crammed around the Mona Lisa, just trying to get a glimpse of this tiny little painting. And and then there's, and then you go into this room, and there's the, the Moabite. I, I didn't even know it was there. I didn't remember that it was there. And nobody's paying any attention. They're just shuffling by it. Nobody even. I was, it's just three thousand year old stone inscribed. During this time, it's not something that was written later, it was written, inscribed on the stone, while this, while these events were unfolding, by this Moabite king. And, and so, uh, so we have, we have this record. And so, what, and this is where we're getting to our story, hang with me. The Moabites were so successful in their second revolt, in part because of Ahaziah's, uh, refusal to respond aggressively to their threat. And this was what I mean. He sent his troops out into battle, but he didn't go with them and he didn't lead them into battle. He took a kind of a hands-off approach when it came to dealing with the Moabites in their, when they revolted after Ahab's death. Why did, he, why did he stay in the safety of his palace while his armies were out fighting the Moabites? Well, it's because of what Probably, I would say, it's because of what Elijah had prophesied about Ahab and Ahab's sons. Back in 1 Kings 21, that Ahab and all of his sons, there were 70 plus sons of Ahab, they would all be wiped off the face of the earth by the Lord. So Ahaziah knew that his dad, Ahab, died in battle, and he knew how he died. He was, trying, he was trying to hide, he was, trying to, he was dressed in disguise so he wouldn't be seen, and yet this arrow fired at random by some archer just happens to go through the joint between his, in his armor, and he gives him a mortal, a fatal wound, and he dies. And the writer makes it clear, as we read this just a moment ago, that God guided that arrow into, into that plate in his armor. And so he he knows this. No wonder Ahaziah is afraid to go into battle. And so he probably thinks he's safer if he just stays home off the battlefield. He could escape God's wrath by hiding in the safety of his own palace with guards everywhere, protecting his life. And God's hand of judgment couldn't reach him there. But he's wrong. His... Safe palace turns out not to be such a safe place at all. Look in verse 2. Now Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. He doesn't die on battle. That's not the wound that's going to kill him. It's, It's a tripping hazard. Or may... And, and and there, okay, we're caught up. We did it, alright? So that was a long introduction, but we're, we're caught up to the movie. This is, you know whose mangled body this is laying on the floor. You, you know it's Ahaziah, the wicked son of the wicked King Ahab, and you know how it got there. It's not just an unfortunate accident. This is, this is God's judgment. And so the wicked King Ahaziah is sick and dying, And you know what? He's representative of the whole kingdom. Kingdom Representative of the whole kingdom. The whole nation is sick and dying. Decline, decline, decline. And so the story of kings, listen, now let's get to our outline. The story of kings, including this episode, isn't just a story about men. It's not just about David, Solomon, Elijah, Ahab, Ahaziah. The leading character in the story is God. You need to see that. We meet God in the book of Kings. Is he judging? Absolutely. He's guiding arrows. He's pushing people off balconies. No, it doesn't say that. But he, he's, he's accomplishing his purpose. He's, but he's also dispensing mercy. And he's guiding, providentially guiding history. He's a faithful, promise-keeping, covenant-preserving God. He delivers and he saves. He keeps the royal line intact and uh, that will ultimately culminate in the ultimate son of David, the king of kings, Jesus. So one, one commentator said of, in, in, in light of this, he says, Old Testament narrative is a declaration from God about God. So this is all about God. And I want you to see that. I know it's easy to get caught up in the details of the stories and the Moabite stones. I think I... Yeah, there was a picture, don't, don't go back to it now, if you saw. But it's easy to comprehend those things. But we want to behold God. And it's in that vein that we want to see God this morning in this chapter of, of 2 Kings. So four features that the Lord reveals about himself in 2 Kings chapter 1. Let's see the first one. First thing that we'll see is that God has zero tolerance policy when it comes to idolatry. Look in verse 2. Now, Ahaziah fell through the lattice in his upper chamber in Samaria and lay sick. Now, he either fell through some kind of screened, wooden screened window or a, or like a, a parapet, a wooden parapet around the roof, something like that. And we're not told explicitly. And we don't know whether it was just, again, a, a tripping accident or whether he was drunk or, or we're not, we're not told. But he falls from this upper story to the ground and is sick hurt bad. So he sent messengers telling them, go inquire of Baal Zebub, the God of Ekron, whether I shall recover from this sickness. So his injury from the fall is so serious that he's not sure if he's going to make it. And he needs, he needs a God to tell him whether he's going to live or not. And so he seeks out a word from this mute, non God of the Philistines, Beelzebub. Now, how sad is that? This is the God of Goliath, that mocker and blasphemer of the God of Israel, it's a great enemy of Israel. And he goes to, he sends a messenger this 45 miles to Philistine, to, to, the, to Ekron, Philistia, to to inquire of their idol. They're prophets. They had a reputation for telling fortunes. This is like the modern, this is like their version of the psychic friends network or something like that. He he was looking for a word. God in explicit terms denounced this kind of fortune telling. He warned in Deuteronomy chapter eighteen, verses nine to twelve about that he warned them not to seek those who tell fortunes who interpret omens who inquire of the dead and on and on and on these are all the text says abominations of the lord and so you i just say to you keep that in mind before you read horoscopes before you consult a fortune teller or a palm reader and you think it's just fun and it's just cute I, I, and don't make some superstitious decision based upon what some self-styled prophet says, whether it's in a horoscope or some religious fortune teller. I uh, just say that it's, it's not a slight sin. It's a serious sin in God's sight. It's especially serious for the king of God's people to be doing this. And so the closest God he thinks can help him is in Ekron. And so there's a debate about the name of this God, and we're not going to go into that. It, the name means Lord of Flies, but there's a question of was this really Lord of Princes, Beelzebul, and then it was translated, or the writer puts this in as in, in jest. Um, it doesn't really matter, to be honest, and there's a lot of, of ink spilt on the naming of this God. All we need to know is that prefix, Baal, says it all for our purposes. This is some sort of Baal. This false god that his father Ahab and his wicked mother Jezebel bowed to and propagated throughout the land. This is, that, this is that Baal. So verse 3, But the angel of the Lord said to Elijah the Tishbite, Arise, go to meet the messengers of the king of Samaria and say to them, Is it because there is no god in Israel that you are going to inquire of Beelzebub, the god of Ekron?'" Now therefore, thus says the Lord: You shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. So Elijah went. So Elijah's given this message from God. Go tell them. Meet these messengers along the road. And the next thing you know, in the, as it's recorded for us, Elijah's or Ahaziah's goons are reporting back to him, telling them what what's happened. And the writer omits the actual encounter between. Uh, ahaziah's men and elijah but we get an idea of what happened verse five so the messengers returned to the king and he said to them why have you returned they're back so quickly he knows that they didn't finish their mission which was to go to into philistia and get a word from this false god but why why are they back why did they abort verse six and they, they they tell the king about this man who stopped them and they report everything that Elijah said to them. And so they are very accurate in what they say. Verse 6, then, and you think about this for a moment. These men have been given an order by the king to inquire of Beelzebub. But they have this short encounter with a total stranger along the road. And they totally abandon their assignment and go home. It's just it's weird, isn't it? Why, why, would, why would they do that? Why would they give so much credence to what Elijah says? What, what was it about Elijah that made them take orders from him instead of obeying their king? Was it his physical presence, as we'll see the description that may have been part of it? He was strangely dressed and, and certainly unusual. Um, was it his personality? He seems rather stern and severe and intense in most of his um, encounters. Uh, I think it was more than style, though. What, what we find is that Elijah spoke with the authority and power of God himself. And these men got it. So they turned back. So the king presses them. They want, he wants a description of this troublemaker, this man that said this on the way. Verse 7, and he said to them, What kind of man was he who came to meet you and told you these things? They answered him. He wore a garment of hair and a, with a belt of leather about his waist. And he said, It is Elijah the Tishbite. He hated Elijah the Tishbite. But don't you know that that rage that was inside of Ahaziah was also mixed with a healthy dose of despair because he knew what was prophesied by Elijah? It must have been this sinking, sinking feeling in his gut. And so, let me just pull away for a second. Let's draw a few things here. The the section, what this teaches us is that idolatry is a big deal to God. Uh, This is nothing new for us in the study of kings. He, He won't tolerate other gods. What can we learn about this idolatry that God hates so much? The first thing I'll say is this, is that the roots of idolatry run deep into the habits of the heart. This is what I mean. Don't you think for a second that Ahaziah's request for a word from Beelzebub was just some kind of impulsive act out of desperation um, in in this moment of weakness where we would say, well, just give the guy a break. He just fell from a third-story window or something. No, that's not it at all. The whole reign of Ahaziah is characterized by serving Baal and bowing down to him. We saw this. And so here in verse 2, Ahaziah is just showing the consistency of his faith in Baal. Baal has always been his god of choice. He has had no place for the true one, true living God, the Lord, Yahweh. And so he had already given his heart to Baal his whole life, and, and the habits of his life simply reflected that. And so even when faced with his own mortality, even when he's staring death in the face, the tires of his life just fall into the ruts of his heart. Because that's where he's always gone, to Baal. I just say to us, all idolatry begins in the heart. Ezekiel 14, and there are so many places in Scripture that make this clear. That's 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 where, that's where the... Where it comes from. Everything begins in the heart. Proverbs 4.23 so, so we can't get comfortable with our heart idols. We've got to smash them. Not, not uh, swaddle them. And I'll, we'll come back in just a moment. I'll, I'll help, help you identify what those heart idols may be. But if you give them room in your heart. There will be habits formed in your life. That are going to be difficult to break. And that's what we see with Ahaziah. Not, not even... And the, with the imminent prospect of death, will we be able to pry those idols out of, uh, out of our hands and our hearts? Uh, you hear things, people say things like, I'll, I'll live for money, I'll live for pleasure and, and self and sex, I'll live for those things, and then, and then when I get near to death, or when I get older, then I'll turn to the Lord, and, and that's, that's my plan. You know what? God's mercy is great. He he can save a thief on the cross. But but what about the other thief? He's clinging to his idols. He's mocking the Lord. He's even in the face of death, even with the Son of God in flesh right next to Him. He's holding him. Let that be a warning to you. Don't don't think that, that that's going to be the case. The habits of your heart... Will order your life, even in the face of death. Second thing we learn about this idolatry that God hates is idol intoxication blinds us from reality. I mean, the, the key question in the text is in verse 3 Is it because there is no God in Israel that you were going to inquire of Beelzebub? Is there no God in Israel? The, the, the Lord made it very clear that the Lord was God and that Baal was nothing at Mount Carmel. That was not. Just a few years earlier. Ahaziah knew this, he saw this, but he was blinded by from the truth because of his idolatry. And no amount of proof, no amount of evidence was going to convince him that the Lord was the one true living God. He simply would not believe. And when he lay on his deathbed even, he couldn't see that the Lord alone was God. And could be trusted. He instead he was ready to step off into the edge of, edge of eternity with nothing but Baal. And I should say, then, with nothing. As Baal is man-made. It's sad and it's foolish. But idolatry blinds men and women today. The same. We we can be deceived into thinking that our gods are real, that they can they can truly give us joy and peace and hope and security. Comfort, even when, and even when our gods don't come through, we simp- there are people that will simply refuse to turn to the Lord. Blinded to reality. And then last, in the, in the face of the king's idolatry, we see God sending word through Elijah. And, and I would say this about that. It's God's mercy to rub our faces in the first commandment. And that's basically what Elijah's doing here. He's stopping Ahaziah in his tracks and he's just throwing up in his face the first commandment. shall worship the Lord God. Serve him only. Is there no God in Israel? You go after these other gods. And so Ahaziah believes Israel has no God, that Yahweh is either non-existent or irrelevant or impotent. And so... God sends Elijah to stop the king's wicked expedition in its tracks. And so, while that interruption may seem rude and may seem severe, in reality, it's merciful. It's merciful. This was an opportunity for Ahaziah, if he could only see it for that. The Lord would not allow his idolatry just to continue on in peace. And so, he invaded his space in the And he rubbed it in his face. I just say there's love in God's discipline, there's love in his fury. He won't let you walk the path of idolatry peacefully, easily. The the misery that you may be experiencing in your life right now, it may be his mercy. And so he, he, can, he litters our paths with roadblocks, with obstacles, and they serve as warnings to us to turn us to the Lord. Quit chasing after idols. Worship the Lord. And God is faithful in his mercy to stop us. Not make it easy. Even as believers, we, we're told to keep ourselves from idols. 1 John 5.21, we need to do everything we can to rid ourselves of those things that God hates. So, so let me just, just, let's just do a quick soul scan real quick. So just wave the wand over your life here verbally. And, and let's just see what kind of residue there is in your life of idolatry. We all have them in our hearts and they all show up in our habits. So let me just, let me just ask a few questions this morning. You're not going to be able to write these down, I'm sorry. You can get them from me later if you're interested. Because uh, I'm going to go quick. But... Do you help, this will help you kind of identify some of the idols in your life. What do you feel you need to have in order to be happy? I need this to be happy. Maybe I'll, I'd be happy if I was loved and respected. It's a God of approval. I'd be happy if I could enjoy a particular quality of life. It's a God of comfort. I can get, if, if I can get control over my life in some area, then I'll be happy. The God of control. I'd be happy if I can be more productive and get a lot of work done. God of work. I'd be happy if people will recognize my accomplishments. God of achievement. I'd be happy if I had a certain level of wealth or financial freedom or if I had nicer things. God of materialism. I'd be happy if I could get into some certain social group. I'd be happy if my parents or my children were happy or if they were happy with me. Family can be a I'd be happy if I could look a certain way or be a certain size. Like God of image. So what, what, do you, what do you need in order to be happy? That's going to tell you pretty good chance what your idols may be. Second question. What do you think about when you go to bed at night and when you wake up in the morning? What's the, first thing that, the last thing on your mind at the end of the day and the first thing on your mind when you wake up? That can be telling. Third, what what do you spend a lot of time on each day? What would others say you spend a lot of time on each day? Fourth, what do you worry about? What do you fear losing? Fifth, what would you have a hard time giving up for a month? Sixth, what, what do you escape to when you're having a difficult time in life, when you're discouraged or stressed out or depressed? What do you run to for relief? Seventh, what are you most proud of in your life? What do you want to be known for? Eighth, what do you hide from others? Nine, what do you talk about too much? What do you always lead with in conversations with people? And finally, what could you what could you not live without? <sighs> okay. You squirming a little bit? <laughs> I am. Um, and so we have these. God detests them. That's the first thing that we learn about God. All right, we're going to go quickly here. We can do this. Um, I knew that would be a longer one. So God has this intolerance for idolatry. The second thing we see about God in Second Kings one is that God has the backs of His messengers. Verse nine. Then the king sent to him Elijah. Sent to Elijah a captain of fifty men with his fifty, so fifty one armed soldiers. He went up to Elijah, who was sitting on the top of a hill, and said to him, "O oh, man of God, the king says, "Come down." Now let's pause to note something really quick, that what was Ahaziah's intent in sending this military contingent? Was this a golf invitation <laughs> or a dinner invite? I don't think he sends 51 armed soldiers to ask Elijah to come and have tea so they can talk things over. This was an open declaration of hostilities on Ahaziah's part. Elijah knew it. God knew it. And so he knew that Elijah, who Elijah was, he knew what he spoke was the word of God. And and so what this is, is a hostile attempt to silence God's word. That's what we see here. He's probably, he's trying to stop to shut God's word up by shutting the prophet up. He didn't like what God spoke through Elijah, that Ahab's sons would be wiped out, namely. (laughs) So he tried to do away with God's word by doing away with God's prophet. That's what we're seeing. So I'd say this, we shouldn't be surprised by attempts to forcibly hijack and destroy God's word. That's what this is. And that is not uncommon. People, people still go to great lengths to marginalize, to, to minimize, to rationalize, to spiritualize, to alter, to to just do away with God's word even on our own day. And Paul warned of this to Timothy. He said there, there will come a time when people won't endure sound teaching. But they're going to have itching ears and they will accumulate for themselves teachers to suit their own passions. People will tell them what they want to hear. And this is what Ahaziah wanted. He wanted a God and of from the Philistines to tell him what he wanted to hear he did not want to hear what God had to say it's so verse 10 but Elijah answered the captain of 50 if i'm a man of god let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your 50 then fire came down from heaven and consumed him and his 50 now <sighs> some christians some commentators some of us, we get, we get a little nervous in sections like this, don't we? We'll have this next week too with the she-bears. You can read ahead. We, we can be a little embarrassed. One commentator said this even. that In the annihilation of the king's innocent emissaries by fire, there is a moral, moral pointlessness to it. Moral pointlessness. Is this moral pointlessness? I don't, I don't think so. I don't think you can say that if you honestly read what's going on. So, but let's back up. Why fire? Why fire? Why destroy these men with fire? I, I think we know why fire, because it's meant to point us back to Mount Carmel. It's already been settled. The, the the battle of the gods, and whoever, whichever God answered with fire was the true God, whether it was Baal or the Lord, and who won? The Lord, clearly, decisively. It's already been shown. This should have been unnecessary, but the, the king knew this. Ahaziah knew this. Carmel proved that Yahweh was the only true God. Baal was nothing. But he was, again, blinded to that reality by his idolatry. And so when he needs medical attention, he doesn't call on the Lord. He calls on Baal, the loser. And Yahweh sends fire again to show him that he's God. And and you notice, it's not Elijah who's burning these men up. It's God. Fire comes from heaven, so don't beat up on Elijah for this moral pointlessness, which is not. Blame God. He's, he's the one who does it here. And so this, this is immediate, miraculous, supernatural cremation. It's not like these guys are just kind of charred, they're, they're ashes. You could fit what remained of them in a coffee cup. I mean, that's, they're consumed by this fire from heaven. This is supernatural stuff. And apparently, though, there were some witnesses who saw this and they report back to the king what happened. Verse 11, again, the king said, to, sent to him another captain of 50 men with his 50. And he answered and said to, to him, O oh, man of God, this is the king's order. Come down quickly. But Elijah answered them, if I am a man of God, let fire come down from heaven and consume you and your fifty. Then the fire of God came down from heaven and consumed him and his fifty. Verse thirteen. And again, the king sent the captain of a third fifty in his fifty. I mean, you get the feeling that Ahaziah is just going to keep sending soldiers until his whole army is burned by this fire from heaven. He's what a leader, huh? He's going to stop at nothing in his attempt to destroy. God's word by killing God's prophet, but the fire wasn't just a demonstration. The fire was protection. It was protection. This was the, this was God's means of defending his, his unarmed prophet. He's not packing heat here. He, no king, no tyrant, no bully, no despot can can penetrate the shield of God's protection. That's what this is showing us. He can breathe all the threats he likes. He can send all the soldiers he wants. He can, he can deceive. He can use trickery. But if God is protecting his prophet, none of those tactics are going to do anything. See this? Menacing tyrants are bugs on the windshield of God's protective care. I worked on that statement a long time this week. So just... <laughs> Thank you. Um, With with all their bravado, they amount to nothing compared to God. Nothing. Now, I say that, but is that reality? What about the hundreds of prophets that were killed by Jezebel? What about the blood of the martyrs that has flowed throughout church history? What about our brothers and sisters even today? There's more Christians being killed today than ever in the history of the world. What, 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 how do we reconcile these, those statements? What this shows, what, what the point of this is, is no, no man, no tyrant can extinguish the witness of the word of God. And, and we know this, even if the bodies of God's servants are killed, their souls, their souls are preserved by God. God's truth remains. I mean, we're this. The body they may kill. God's truth abides still. His kingdom is forever. But even today, God is able to, and He often does protect His messengers in the face of opposition. He doesn't always, but He does. It's, it's So it's right for us to pray for the protection of our persecuted brothers and sisters in Christ. I would just... Say that and then we'll let's move on so we can be confident that God keeps us. God's word word will keep running despite the efforts of puny, piddly, menacing kings like Ahaziah or whoever we face today. Third thing that teaches us about God is God has merciful reflexes towards the humble. Merciful reflexes. Put your shoes, put yourself in the shoes of the third captain of 50 for a minute. He, as he's making his way toward the hill, he can just start to make out the outline of this man's, this old man sitting up on the hill, and he's scared. He's a captain of Israel in Israel's army. He's he's been to battle many times, no doubt. He's never felt fear like he feel, feels right now, though. Even with 50 armed men at his back who will do whatever he tells them to do, who will lay down their lives for him as the captain, he's afraid. When the order came to him from the king to go, he knew about the other 102 soldiers that have already been scorched. He knew that this meant almost certain death. And yet Ahaziah was not one you could refuse. Turning back was not an option. To not follow through on his assignment would be certain death by Ahaziah. So he couldn't defy Ahaziah. But could he truly defy God? Yahweh? His, his creator? His two predecessors had tried. They were also captains of 50. With 50 men at their, at their command. They confronted the prophet. They defied the God of Israel. And twice fire came down and consumed them. 102 soldiers burned. To nothing. Trying to capture an old man. What is his only hope? It's mercy. Mercy. It's mercy that he knows he will not find in King Ahaziah. But perhaps. Perhaps. He can find it. In the Lord, the God of Israel. So as the ground grows steeper and as he begins to ascend, he tells his men to stay back. And he goes up by himself and he comes face to face with Elijah. And he falls on his knees and he begs. Verse 13, O man of God, please, please let my life and the life of these 50 servants of yours be precious in your sight. Behold, the fire came down from heaven and consumed the two former captains of fifty men with their fifties. But now let my life be precious in your sight. The other captains, they spewed demands and their arrogance. This captain has a totally different posture. He basically says, I know I'm within a millimeter of total annihilation. (laughs) Please spare me and my men. He kneels, he humbles himself, he pleads, he trembles. He lives. He lives. This, this is this is all three are recorded for us to take note of this, of this response, and the difference between these responses. This is an example. This is how this is how you should respond in the face of God's judgment. This is what Israel needed to do as a collectively. This is what the king needed to do. And so as the captain walks down the hill, alive, at Elijah's side, this should have been the wake up call to King Ahaziah. It would not God have showed mercy if Ahaziah had had the same response, humbled himself in brokenness, pleading for God's mercy? I don't doubt for a second. I mean, this is perfectly in line with God's character to, re- to relent when, when, when people repent. Think of Nineveh. And this is what Jonah was so angry about. It's just like you, Lord, to relent concerning calamity when people repent. Typical Yahweh. But right in the middle of this death spiral caused by this idolatry, God's mercy shows up and it saves a life and 51 lives, really. And it stands as an invitation to others. We see in this passage how low sin brings rebels, but we see also that no one then is beyond the reach of God's grace. No matter how, let me just say to you, no matter how low sin has brought you in your life, no matter what kind of debris trail there is behind your life because of, your sin, because of your idolatry, you are not beyond the reach of God's mercy and grace. It is one, one moment of falling on your knees and pleading for mercy. And you are born again. New creature in Christ. Old things gone. New things have come. Sin is a moment. So I pray that God would strike you with the holy terror. Not to not for terror's sake, but that that holy terror would become to you a saving terror. That you would turn. If you're here today and if you've, you've chased after the folly of idolatry, and, of, and you wouldn't call it that, but just your, life is a mess with sin, and you may be orderly, and you may not be a family guy, and you may have things in order by external appearances, but you are rotting on the inside and you've rebelled against the Lord and you've refused to trust in Christ, I I just beg you today to plead for God's mercy. And He will hear and He will answer. And you can be new today. You can walk out of this place a changed man, a changed woman, a changed child. And so, that would be far better than just going on to uh, some kind of blissful death without Christ. Remember, the reach, remember that the, the reach of God's grace also as you pray for those that don't know Christ. No one is beyond. Don't give up hope. Keep pleading. Keep praying. God is able. All right, fourth thing this passage teaches us about God, and then we'll, we'll be done. And this is a warning again God makes good on his threats. God makes good on his threats. Verse 16 Elijah rose, went down with him to the king, and said to him, Thus says the Lord, because you send, because you have sent messengers to inquire of Beelzebub, the God of Ekron, is it because there is no God in Israel to inquire of his word? Same message. Therefore you shall not come down from the bed to which you have gone up, but you shall surely die. Third time this message has been repeated in this text. No small talk. No pleasantries exchanged. No interrogation. No interview. He just... Simply announces to Ahaziah face to face, eyeball to eyeball, the same word that the king had already heard before and rejected. And he ends it with, You shall surely die. And then verse 17, So he died, according to the word of the Lord that Elijah had spoken. It's as if to say, what, do you, what did you expect? If Yahweh speaks, it happens. A certain fulfillment of God's word is a major theme in 1st and 2nd Kings. And this is just another case in point of that. What Yahweh says, Yahweh does. He is the God who delivers on his threats. So he died according to the word of the Lord. Now that statement cuts two ways though. It's this, if, if God can be counted on to fulfill his threats, which he can, he can also be counted on to fulfill his promises. What God says can be counted on. That's the big point. His assurances, though, are just as reliable as his judgments. That's great news. And as Christians, we need to know that. We look at passages like John 6.37, All that the Father gives to me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. John 14.3, If I go to prepare a place for you, I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And just on and on, those promises are certain. Certain as his threats. As I experienced the other side of the certainty of God's word. But one, as one commentator said, the sure word that can shield, but that sure word can shield as well as shatter you. It can support you as well as smash you. And then the writer puts this black bow on the, top of ahaziah's reign end of verse 17 jehoram became king in his place in the second year of jehoram the son of jehoshaphat king of judah because ahaziah had no son now the rest of the acts of ahaziah that he did are they not written in the book of chronicles of the kings of israel you know, it was interesting there's really not much given about his reign about what he did about how he lived all he really tells us is how he died I mean, there's there's something a little bit haunting about the record of Ahaziah's reign in that in the supreme need of his life with facing death, he did not seek the real God. And that's all we really need to know about him. That's what the writer is telling us. I mean, are you, are you going to seek God in the supreme need of your life? What we were told in Scripture is we're always on the edge of eternity. we don't know what tomorrow holds. we don't know what one hour from now holds I mean i'm not trying to be morbid or scare you and, and myself, but I want you to understand reality is we could we could croak before the end of this service and where will what will happen what will happen who's who are you entrusting your life to? Some idol are you hoping and so, or were you hoping in the Lord alone? That's what this is struck. This is what this is telling us. But Ahaziah is not the focus of the story, as we saw. God is. This is God's story. And I've tried to state this in the way we've stated the points. Stress this: you, you, you have to deal with God. You do what you want with this story. You call it a legend. It's not. It's true. It's confirmed archaeology and other means. We know it's true. It's God's word is always true. But, but do, do what you want with the story. You can try to poke holes in it. Call it the product of some primitive religion. You can, you can claim it's morally pointless. You can call it offensive. But What are you going to do with God? Bow before Him. Bow before the God of whom this speaks. This is what I urge you. You can't get away from Him. Turn to Psalm 2 real quick, and let's end here. Psalm 2, and then we're going to sing. Psalm 2, let's let's read of of this God. This is a psalm that points to the King of Kings, to Jesus, the one that the book of Kings is pointing us towards. This is the object of the hatred of the kings of the earth. This is ultimately the object of the hatred of Ahaziah, even because is the object of the hatred of the devil. Psalm 2, why do the nations rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, saying, let us burst their bonds apart and cast their cords away from us. He who sits in the heavens laughs. The Lord holds them in derision. This is this is the application of this truth. Verse 10. Now, therefore, O kings, be wise. Be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear, and rejoice with trembling. Kiss the sun, pay homage to the sun, lest he be angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in Him. Take refuge in Him. Pay homage to the Son. Bow before the Son. Jesus did not come into this world to condemn the world, but that the world might be saved through Him. God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son whoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. I pray, let's pray together. Lord, I pray that there if there's someone here today who is not who's not kissed the Son, who has not believed in your only Son Jesus Christ, that that Jesus died in their place, taking the punishment that they deserve, I pray, Lord, that today that they would fall to their knees pleading for mercy. I pray that you would reverse the fates of people in this room today, God. The courses of lives. That there would be new creatures born even today. Young children. Or the elderly. Or people that have just walked in today. Or people that have been in this church for 40 years. And have just been casually attending. Lord, work this by the power of your spirit. And for all of us today. I pray that... I pray that we would behold you as you really are, Lord. That we would, we know that kings and nations tremble at your voice. We're going to sing these words. We know that you're seated on your throne. We know that no one compares to you. We know that you will reign forever and that your glory fills the earth, Lord. God, that's, the, that's how we need to think about you. And so I pray that you would conform our thoughts, our minds to the reality of who you are. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.